This morning, we're going to be back in the most famous world-changing sermon that was ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to, in a few minutes, read from the end of Matthew chapter 6. So please turn there in your Bibles with me. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. They're in the back corners and in the front corners here. Um, Have one open at the end of Matthew chapter 6. But before we do dig into this text, I would love to just spend a couple more minutes praying together to ask for God's help that we'd hear his voice. Let's pray. Father, we are here to worship you this morning, full of your spirit through the work that your son has done. You're the living and triune God. And I pray, Lord, in this moment that you would help us to continue to worship you. Lord, help us to gaze upon you with our hearts as we see you through your word. Would you illumine our hearts as only you can? Help us to know you in a new and deeper way as we enter into this text. And Lord, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters who aren't able to be here this morning. Lord, they might be working, they might be sick and in the hospital, they might be at home. We pray that you would be with them. Would they know your comfort and your joy and peace this morning, wherever they are? Would you bring healing and your presence to them? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to read Jesus' teaching on worry. We've seen over and over again that when Jesus teaches, he gets below the surface. He gets to the heart. That's what he's after, our deepest loves and our deepest desires, the way we actually are, not just the way we might appear on the surface. So rather than calling us and his followers to outward behavior modification, he's calling us to deep heart transformation, where even our desires and our longings become like his. A life where right now we live with him in his kingdom, right now, in our day-to-day life, enjoying his constant company and drawing on his resources as we go through the things that he has brought into our life each day. As we do that, we become more and more like him as we trust him in that way. And we're going to see as we walk through this really important teaching on worry this morning that Jesus takes the same approach he has taken throughout this sermon. He doesn't stay at the surface level. He doesn't give us quick fixes or techniques. He gets deeper into the heart of things where really the real work needs to be done. This topic, worry and anxiety and fear, is one that I'm sure for many of us in the room is front of mind. We may be feeling it this morning as we sit here. We might know a close friend or a family member who's dealing with it right now and we feel for them. We long for them to not be in the depths and the throes of that anymore. The truth is our age is characterized as an age of anxiety. There's a sense that not only are we anxious, but we're becoming more and more and more anxious. And as we become more anxious, we look for more and more relief from wherever we can find it. There are more and more promises of freedom that abound all around us. If only we would just do this, or just buy that, or read this, or take this, or look like this, then maybe we could be okay. Then we would have what? 
We're not quite sure, but at least we know we want a life without worry. We want a life that is full of peace and contentment. And this sense that we're living in an ever-anxious age is showing up on TV. It's showing up in movies, and it's showing up in music. The arts always reflect what's going on in a culture and in a people. A clear example of this, a good one, is from the popular Canadian indie rock band, Arcade Fire. Anyone know Arcade Fire? Okay, it's okay if you don't. You don't need to. Uh, But they're one that I like. Their latest album that just came out, the first two songs on the album are called Age of Anxiety 1 and Age of Anxiety 2. In those songs, they explore how anxiety is running rampant, how worry is controlling us, and what could we possibly do about it. That first song, Age of Anxiety 1, starts with the sound of upbeat drums, but when you listen closely, you realize, actually, it's a fast-beating heart. A rapid-beating heart sets the tempo for the entire song, and it goes all the way through it. Listen to just a couple words from this song. They say, fight the fever with TV in the age where nobody sleeps, and the pills do nothing for me in the age of anxiety. And then they go on to repeat this refrain over and over. Gotta get this spirit out of me, this anxiety that's inside of me. Gotta get this spirit out of me, this anxiety that is inside of me. You can feel their honesty and it is refreshing as you hear the song, but their lack of any real solution is stark. Their lack of any real way forward of dealing with this plague is striking. And it's unclear when you're done with those songs, how would you get that spirit out of you? What would you do? Before we read this text, one more thing. I think especially for this one on worry and anxiousness that is so personal for so many of us, we need to read and hear this text with a specific posture, with a specific intent in mind. The word of God is meant for needy people, for people who are sinners and sufferers in in need of a refuge, in need of a place of safety. So we are meant to come to these words from Jesus this morning, not just because we're intellectually curious and we want to just hear something new and be encouraged, but because we desperately need to hear from him a way forward, a way to get that spirit out of us. I want to start, before we read it, just think for a minute If we're going to come to this text being needy, we need to think, what is it that typically worries me? What is it that typically gets us into an anxious spiral? For most of us, it's going to be something probably under the categories of health or wealth or happiness in some way. And it may be that we're worried about that for ourselves, but a lot of the time I think we're worried about it for other people, people that we love, our friends, our family. So get something in in your mind. What is it that you typically are stewing over? And then let's hear these words of Jesus that are meant for sinners and sufferers in need of refuge and help. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Follow along with me, please. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This passage starts with the word therefore. So Jesus wants to remind us that what he is saying here is connected to what came before it. And remember, this was delivered originally, this whole section was delivered as a sermon. So they heard it all at once. So what we just read is connected to what we read about a couple weeks ago when Jay was preaching about storing up treasures not on earth, but in heaven. And about the impossibility of being devoted to both God and mammon, God and money and possessions. We can't be devoted to both. Today's passage continues that theme of material possessions and what our hearts are devoted to and clinging to. If Jesus calls his disciples to set their hearts on his kingdom rather than on money and possessions, what about their needs? If they haven't been using their energy to store up earthly treasures, won't they be lacking in the basic necessities of life if that's not where their energies are going? The therefore then serves to continue Jesus' thought. If your life is devoted to heavenly treasure, to God and his kingdom, to something that cannot be taken from you, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. A quick note as we walk through this text. So we read this morning in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it uses the word anxious throughout. But if you look, and I checked quite a few of them, most other English translations like the NIV or the New King James or the NASB, they all use the word worry. So in your Bible in front of you, you might see the word worry. But either word, anxious or worry, are fearful responses. And they're responses that convey the idea that something that we value, something that is significant and important to us, is being threatened in some way. Whenever we respond with fear, it's because something that we love is being threatened. One of the challenges that we face with worry is that it reminds us to the level of feeling deep inside that we are not in control. If you asked most of us, are you in control, we would immediately say, no. I'm not in control. There's plenty outside of my control. All kinds of details that I'm not able to master. Yet our worry and what we feel betrays our head knowledge. We feel like we ought to be in control. And our worry tells us, I'm not okay not being in control. It's a stark reminder that the world is full of things 
that are way beyond our ability to deal with and way beyond our ability to control, but we still want to. And Jesus knows this about us. He knows our hearts, and so he lovingly gives us this teaching. We need to hear him saying the the phrases, do not worry or do not be anxious, not as a demand, but as good news. It's an invitation to a life that isn't dominated by worry anymore. We need to remember who is speaking to us so that we can hear these words as they were intended. This is Jesus, the one who gave up his life for us to be in relationship with him, the one who rose victorious over the grave, conquering sin and death and evil because they could not hold him. And because it is Jesus that spoke, do not worry, the tone is one of great care and love and compassion. These are not scolding words. These are not trite words, but words of great concern. This isn't disciplinarian from Jesus. It's not a critique, and it's not coming from someone who doesn't understand how paralyzing this can be for us, as if all we needed was someone to tell us, stop. That's not who's saying this. You probably noticed that as we read through this, that Jesus doesn't offer a quick fix. He doesn't give us a technique that we can engage in for a few minutes of day. If he did, that was, that was probably going to remove worry from our lives. But what he does give us is something so much better. Jesus offers us a person. He doesn't say, just do this, and then do this, and then do this, then worry will be a thing of the past. If he did, did that, he would be feeding the very part of us that so needs to be transformed and renewed, the part of us that so longs for control. If he gave us techniques that we could just practice and that were in our control, our sense of being in control would only grow more and more. He doesn't give us that. He gives us something deeper, something more personal, the living God. We don't worry much about the things we have control over. For example, I don't remember ever worrying if I would have enough water to drink. If I'm thirsty, it's because I chose not to drink some or I forgot or I got too far on a bike ride without enough supplies. Not because I didn't have control. We know that sadly there are many people in the world that is a real worry for, will I have enough clean water to drink? But for us in this time and in this place, We have a sense that our need of water is under our control, so it's not a typical worry for us. If Jesus gave us some techniques, some things that we had control over, then that would feed the very parts of ourselves that most need freedom from. He offers us a person, the Heavenly Father. He does this in the ways that we would expect him to at this point, masterfully. He offers us two things. First, he reminds us of who we are and what our lives are about. And two, he reminds us of who our Heavenly Father is, what he is like. First, he teaches us that life is about more than food and the body is about more than clothing. Life is about more than what sustains it and the body is about more than what we put on. That is not what life is about. And it's not about acquiring enough of those things so that we don't have to worry anymore. No, both of our lives and our bodies 
are meant for something more. He uses that word more there, and that's really important. That's a rich, deep word that could be easy to skip as we read it. Our lives are meant for more. Because whatever our hearts long for and are clinging to, the thing that we must have to be okay, being deprived of that thing is what results in that feeling that we heard about earlier in the song, that spirit inside of us that we want to get rid of. For example, we could also say life is not about having a certain amount of wealth or life is more than having a good reputation or life is more than having enough leisure time. Worry then can be an opportunity to look at what we have intentionally or unintentionally built our lives on that is less than what God intends for us. Our lives are meant for something bigger, for something weightier and eternal, something that is more joyful than those things. And that's what he has for us. He tells us what the more is in verse 33. He says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which means that whenever we spend our lives on anything less than Christ and his kingdom, we're aiming far too low. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But after Jesus says that, he invites us to slow down, which is a great invitation. I don't know about you, but I love that invitation. He says, slow down, look at the birds. And he actually intended for them to look around at that moment. Look at the lilies of the field. He wants us to make a comparison between the way God cares for the birds and the flowers and the way he cares for us. And the insight that we get from that tells us something really important about us and something really important about who God is. The birds don't plant fields, do they? The birds don't bring in a harvest and store it up, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. The point that Jesus is making here is not that birds don't work, though. Just watch a woodpecker hammering away the side of a tree for an insect, or chickens after a bunch of grasshoppers. Very exciting. They work really hard to get those grasshoppers. Yet they do it not like we could do it. They don't do it full of anxiousness. They do it and God provides for them. And if God cares for the birds, the point Jesus is making is that he will certainly take care of each one of us because we are of more value to him than the birds. The birds are clearly important, but not as important as us. We have a unique place in all of God's creation just one passage that highlights this is in the beginning of Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Those are really important verses for us as we understand our place in the world and God's intention for our lives as human beings. It says that he created us very uniquely in his image, and we've talked about that a lot, especially this year. We were to be like him. We were to care for what he made, to take care of it and be stewards of it in his image. And by calling that to mind in Jesus' disciples' minds, by bringing that up, Jesus is reminding them 
This is part of what that more is that you were made for. You were made to be my image. You were made to be my hands and my feet in the world. You were made to take care of that which I created, to cultivate it and to steward it. That's part of the answer of what more is our life to be about if it's not to be about food or clothing or reputation or wealth. Before Jesus moves on, though, to the lilies, he asks another question. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? The answer, of course, is none of us. None of you. None of us, by worrying, have the ability to change anything at all, much less add time to our lifespan. The challenge and the trap that we fall into, though, is that it feels like we do have control when we start worrying. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) When we worry, even though we know we can't change anything, it feels like we do. No one by worrying thinks their circumstances are becoming different but it feels like we're seizing control when we do that. When we start churning over that detail, that conversation, that circumstance, it can mislead us and give us the illusion that somehow by doing it, we are changing things, that reality is changing. A humorous example of this dynamic, we'll see if more people know this reference, is the classic Bill Murray movie, What About Bob? Has anyone seen that, What About Bob? Okay, I hope some people have seen that. Uh, It's from the early 90s, so it's been around for a while now. It's one of my faves, actually. The movie is about Bill Murray as Bob and Richard Dreyfuss as his psychiatrist named Dr. Leo Marvin. Bob is a mess. He's a mess of a person. He's afraid of just about everything you could possibly be afraid of. He's constantly worrying about all the things that he can't control. He has a litany of what-ifs that when his doctor asks him about, he can just spew out what-ifs and fears that he thinks about in order to try to control reality. A couple examples of them that Bob spews without much effort are, what if my heart stops beating? Or, what if I need a bathroom, I can't find one, and my bladder explodes? That's one of his greatest ones, which is nuts, right? He's a professional worrier, Bob is. One of the ways that Bob attempts to deal with all of his fears in the movie is by pretending to experience the things that he's most afraid of. Because in his words, if I fake it, then I don't have it. So, for example, he's afraid his heart will stop beating. So Bob, in front of his doctor, fakes a heart attack. And his doctor says, why are you doing that? Well, if I'm faking it, then I'm not really having it. That's his rationale. I guess it does make sense in a way. By pretending to have a disorder that he fears, he experiences the illusion of control and assures himself that things are going to be okay and that things will work out. Jesus' question, which of you can add an hour to your span of life, highlights that there's a certain irrationality with worry. There's a certain lie that we're believing that we're actually accomplishing anything at all like Bob faking a heart attack, doesn't actually prevent him from having one, worrying will accomplish absolutely nothing good in us or in the world. Here's the trouble, though. We know that. 
that is not surprising information. We know that by worrying, we don't actually change anything in the world, but when you're in the middle of feeling it intensely, it doesn't help. And even though What About Bob is a humorous exaggeration, sadly, worry and anxiety are not funny at all. It can be absolutely paralyzing. As I was researching this passage, I found that the word worry, our word worry, came from an old English word that actually meant to strangle. It's telling. It's a good description because that's what it can feel like, a stranglehold on your life, choking your very life out of you when it's controlling you. I say this from personal experience. I don't want to linger on my story this morning because this is not about me, but I do want you to know, church, that I'm right there with you in this. I have, for my whole life, felt like I have a predisposition to worry. It takes no effort for me to do it, to get 10 steps down the line in my head. Yet it's exhausting, and it really does choke the life out of me when I engage in it. I have experienced the sleeplessness of worry, of being up all night. I've experienced the feeling of helplessness in the midst of a particularly strong bout of it and a host of other physical side effects. But I've also experienced the joy of walking through what worries me with Christ and experiencing his more than sufficient resources for my every need. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The heart of God is with you in the middle of this. The heart of God is with you if this is something that you experience as especially debilitating in your life. He has not and he will not abandon you to this. One more thought about Jesus' question from verse 27. The point that his question is making is that worry cannot add anything else to our life, no more time to it. But it's important to remember the reason that it can't is because it's our Heavenly Father who has determined the length and the span of our life. He has already figured that out, how many days I will have and how long those days will be. That is something that is only for God to think about and it is something for only God to control. We don't get to. When we take anything that is God's to do upon ourselves to do, that's only his, we are instantly overwhelmed. It's like a little child who takes on a task that only a parent can do or an adult can do. It doesn't go well and they become quickly overwhelmed. Imagine like your taxes aren't done yet. You don't have your 11-year-old do it. They'd be instantly overwhelmed if they knew what they were doing at all. We need help from God to recognize when we are doing that very thing with him. When we take upon ourselves something that is only his to do and control and make it ours to control and try to shape. Because as soon as we do that, we're paralyzed. Next, Jesus calls our attention to the lilies, to the fields of flowers. I wish we were out in a field right now so we could look at them, but imagine flowers in full bloom. That's what he wants us to slow down and look at in this moment. Look at their beauty and consider how they grow. Consider how they became so beautiful. They don't do that through an anxious toil. 
They do that because God took care of them and made them that way. Yet they're so fragile. A flower can be in full bloom today and tomorrow not at all. And a flower or a lily in a field could just be stepped on by someone or animals in an instant and be gone. It's so temporary. Jesus, with the lilies of the field, wants us to again make a comparison between them and the way God takes care of them and us and the way God takes care of us. They're temporary and fragile. This is supposed to give us clarity about who God is and how much we are worth to him. If he cares for even the grass of the field that is burned tomorrow, even though it's here today, how much more will he take care of us? And how do you determine what something is worth? Think about that. How do you determine what something is worth? Something that's a lot of value to us, like a home, we would have it appraised. But we know that something is only worth what someone else will pay for it. Think about that. How much are you worth to God? How do you determine your value to him? Isn't it by considering what he was willing to pay for you? What he was willing to give in exchange for you? Have you thought about that? Listen to how Paul answers this question in Romans 8.32. What are we worth? He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The cost of our life, church, was the eternal Son of God, whom the Father had been in fellowship with for all eternity. His life was of infinite worth, and God was willing, because of our worth to him, to give up his Son on our behalf. There isn't a higher price he could have paid for us. And if he showed us that our worth is that great, and he's given us his son, then how much more will he give us everything else that we need in life? All of the other things and the smaller things that still do make us worry. The main question that Jesus is answering with the birds and with the flowers is this. Will God provide for my daily needs or not? Will he give me what I need to be okay in life or not? Or do I need to find that on my own and control that for myself? And Jesus wants to make sure that we know the answer to that question after his examples. In verse 32, he says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly father knows everything you need before you know you need it. And implicit in that statement is he knows it and he wants to give it to you because of your worth to him and he will give you what you need. And knowing that frees us so that we can spend our energies on that more that Jesus talked about earlier, that more and better that he has for us we can spend our energy on. I want to look at verse 33, that more and better. It says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That statement is relational. We need to hear Jesus calling us to a person because that's what he means there. We need to hear him saying, put your energy, put your life, put your effort into knowing the triune living God of the universe, to living in his kingdom and becoming like him in all of your ways, down to the core of who you are in your heart. That is what God's goal is for us. 
ever-deepening communion and friendship with him. That is what he made us for. That is the more that our life is meant for. It's not a technique. It's not a trick. It's not a person. It is a person. He is the more that we were made for. The goal is not to rid yourself of worry. The goal is not to avoid all of the circumstances that will lead to worry in your life. The goal is to know him and to walk with him through those circumstances as you experience them. To be in his kingdom in the midst of the things that that would make your heart beat faster. In the midst of the things that make you seize up. Our goal is not to avoid those and to rid ourselves of any feelings that come from those. Our goal is to walk with him through them. God, the person who is with us. When you view life and the purpose of life from that perspective, that the whole point of it is to be with him, to know him, to love him, to become like him, then worry and challenges and fears actually become opportunities for us to grow in our experience of him. Worry is an opportunity to know in our actual existence, our lived existence, what we believe to be true, that God is with us, that Christ's power and presence is more than sufficient for every need we have in our life. Worry is an opportunity to experience that and to live that out with him. But what does it look like practically? So if Jesus' answer is not a technique, and it's not some quick fix, but it's the person, it's God, what are we to do in the midst of a moment when we are feeling worry, when it's, the heat is rising and we feel the pressure inside of us? What do we do? What does he teach us? Well, I think the answer is, is right in front of us in this text, but it's so obvious and familiar that it's easy to miss. I think the answer of how do you do it and how would you go about doing this with God comes from the term Jesus uses for God that we have gotten very used to. Look what he calls God, our Heavenly Father. He does it here and throughout this sermon, he uses phrases like our Father in Heaven, Heavenly Father, over and over again to describe who God is. And he doesn't just mean that God created us. That's part of what it means that God's Father, but it's actually much more intimate than that. It's much more ongoing than that. What he means is that God is actually our Father. And we are actually his loved children who he takes care of every day. Which means, if we want to know what it could look like to depend upon a person in the midst of worry, we only have to look at a child with loving parents and see what they do. Think about that. A child with good and loving parents when they are afraid, immediately run to mom and dad. They want to be close. They want to be held. A dark basement is different when they are with them. A skinned knee is different when they are in mom's arms. Sickness is different. And when they're able to learn to talk, they love to share all of what's wrong with loving parents. And that's how it ought to be. A child is comforted and helped by the aid of their mom or dad. That is what God's intention is for parenthood. It's a reflection of his goodness to us. 
And it's not just his intention for parenthood, it's his intention for us with him every day of our lives. We can look at the best human examples of it and learn from those examples what it could look like for us to go deeper with Jesus as we walk through challenges and trials and our fears. When we feel worried, we can immediately, in that moment, learn to run to God who is really with us. We can immediately, in that moment, tell him and pray to him about what's going on. So what does your prayer life look like? Think with me for a minute. How conversational is it? One of the keys that will unlock, I think, for most of us, a deeper experience of the nearness of God is honest and conversational interaction with him in the very moments that we most feel the heat and the pressure of life. It's in those moments that we need real and conversational interaction with God. These aren't fancy or formal prayers, but honest expressions to God who really hears us. Just like a little child with mom or dad expressing this is really what's going on. When we need so desperately to feel God's presence, we need to shift from what normally happens for many of us, which is a monologue inside of our own head, to a life-giving dialogue. We shift from monologue mode to dialogue with God. For example, we're churning in our head about a potentially difficult conversation that we're going to have tomorrow. We're worrying about it. So we're playing a video in our head of what that conversation might be like and what we might say if this certain negative thing happens or this certain negative thing happens. We're working on it and we're just stewing over it. That's the monologue approach. What I'm suggesting, and I think what Jesus is inviting us to with his heavenly Father, is instead of going through that monologue, we shift to dialogue, to interaction with God. And we do something like this. Father, I'm worried about this conversation. I'm afraid it's going to go this way. Father, I need you to help me. I need you to help me trust that you are near, that you know how to take care of me, because right now, I don't feel that way. I need you to fill me with your spirit and calm my anxious heart. The Bible is full of examples of God's people calling out in those honest and quick words. Listen to this from Psalm 55. These are raw and honest words cried out to God. It says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. And horror overwhelms me. That's a great example of what it could look like when we feel those things to instead of keeping them in our own head, expressing them to God. And of course, because this is a dialogue, we express those things to God and then we listen for his response, for his voice. Because his voice and truth are important in that moment. And to that end, about hearing God's voice, I want to share just two more verses with you this morning. They're both verses that for me in my life, God has used to speak powerfully to me in moments of desperate need. They're both in Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 26.3. It says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The second one is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These are gems of promises that we can memorize and that God's Spirit, when they are memorized, can make live within us. My freshman year of college, both of these verses were suggested to me as things that were worth storing up within me so that God could use them in those moments where I needed to be reminded of who he is. And I would commend them both to you. There are plenty of others in the room, I'm sure, that have helped you as well. Promises that we can cling to from the word and that we can plead before him. And when we memorize scripture, and we memorize in this way, to use it this way, it's a relational endeavor. Because what we're doing is we're learning at a heart level who God actually is and what he's like. And we're being reminded over and over again that he is our circumstance. No matter what else we're going through, he is our circumstance. He is with us in the middle of it. So I'd love to hear if there are some more for you this week that have been especially helpful. Other promises that God has used to stir your heart, to bring it comfort in the midst of worry. Church, this is just the beginning of a conversation about this topic. It's way too big for one Sunday morning. So I want to encourage you this week, continue to interact about it. I would love to talk more with you about it, and I would encourage you, interact with God about it. If you're sitting here this morning feeling it, tell him. And then tell a brother or sister. One of the best things we can do is invite other people in to pray with us. One of the things you might need to do this morning is say, I heard that passage and it did not get into my heart. It just bounced right off. It had like no effect on me. And if that happened to you this morning, that's okay. That's part of what God is doing. So inviting someone else into that moment and saying, could you pray that God would use his word and use the teachings of Jesus to penetrate to the deep places of my heart that need change? Do that. Ask for help from each other and with God. Remember, church, Jesus offers us a way forward, and the way forward is a person, the living triune God. We get to walk together with that person. Let's pray. Father, even as I talk about this topic this morning that Jesus preached on so brilliantly and vividly, Lord, I feel the inadequacy of 30 minutes to dig into it adequately. Lord, you know where each heart is this morning and what each of us need, and I pray that you would be speaking your comfort and your hope your love and your truth to us this week. And Lord, for our friends and loved ones who we know battle especially hard with this, we pray right now in this moment, we lift them up before you and ask for your healing, for your help, for your presence to be in their life in a new and powerful way, even in this moment. Thank you, Lord, that we were worth so much to you that you would give up your son. Continue to fill us with your spirit as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.